who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Singularity by Bill DeSmet. Copyright 2004 by William H. DeSmet. All rights reserved. Chapter 23 Armageddon Vortilok fed. Vortilok would always feed. An entity defined solely by its ravenous hunger, Vortilok hurtled along its subterranean trajectory, and it fed. But there was so little to feed upon. Vortilok's capture cross-section was only marginally wider than the diameter of an atomic nucleus. At subatomic scales, the solid matter of the mantle through which Vortilak traveled was mostly empty space. Individual atoms were few and far between, and what few it consumed were as nothing compared to its mountainous mass. They could do little to assuage its insatiable appetite. Only when it had spiraled into the very center of the earth where the atoms of the molten interior were densely packed, could it begin to feed in earnest. Yet, for a time, the dynamics of its own motion forestalled that inevitable outcome. Although Vordelach swallowed only a few atoms in its headlong plunge through the earth, its passage influenced many more. Its immense local gravitational field reached out to draw in mass from the immediate vicinity all along its path, to collide in its wake. The resulting shock front at its stern yielded Zeldovich-Salpeter acceleration, a tiny push that, for a time at least, could counter the even tinier pulls of gravity and drag. Powered by its own self-made thrusters, Vortilak would remain in a semi-stable orbit, for a time. 
For a time, a time now well into its tenth decade, Vortilak's augmented trajectory would keep it within capture range. The question was how to capture it. On its travels through the earth, Vortilak traced out a delicate rosette, reminiscent of a rose window in a Gothic cathedral. But each petal of this rose, each orbital arc, took the shape of a flattened semicircle, half of an ellipsoid. This geometry was critical for capture. It meant that Vortilak's speed was not uniform. Most of the time, the primordial black hole whizzed along, like the subterranean Sputnik it was. But there were two points at either end of the arc, where it ceased to rise and hesitated before falling back. In this, its motion was not all that different from a cannonball fired into the sky at an angle. It goes up, it comes down, but for a moment there, at the maximum of the curve, it does neither. It slows and slows, and then hangs in space for an instant before speeding up again on the return trip. It was in these moments, when Vordelak slowed to a crawl at the top of its curve, that it would be easiest to stop it entirely, stop it and hold it. It had taken 33 months of electromagnetic nudging, nearly three years truing up the orbit, but finally the local maximum of one of Vordelak's arcs, its 2247 apogee was about to pass precisely through the center of Antipode Station's spherical superconducting electromagnetic array. Galina sat at the master console in the now-crowded quarters of the secret lab, with Grishin hovering over her shoulder. She leaned forward and keyed in a single word, Armageddon. A strange, non-Russian word, that a word from the Bible. She had looked it up. The final battle between good and evil, the fate of the world hanging in the balance. Galina nodded to herself. It fit. Responding to her keystrokes, 3,000 meters below, Antipode Station came online. Galina looked at the time display as Antipode's enormous electromagnets powered up. 10.37 p.m., Vortilak was still ten minutes downrange. Postrelnikova here, Galina spoke into her mic, requesting verbal confirmation on the ray power-up. North Hemisphere, nominal. Temperature holding at minus 266 degrees Celsius, a voice whispered into her headset, followed by okays from the other monitoring stations. She swiveled in her chair and nodded to Arkady Grigorievich. All boards green. Showtime. Curtain going up in eight minutes on the most important performance of her life. Bordelak sped along its track, oblivious to what awaited. Grishin nodded a confirmation. They were go for capture. Galina entered a penultimate keystroke combination. She licked her lips and leaned forward toward the microphone again. Commencing braking train configuration. It came out as a whisper. Three kilometers down, in the sunless depths of the Newfoundland Basin, there rose a mountain called Hope. Mount Nadezhda, Russian for hope, was the seamount whose summit, 
towering a kilometre and a half above the abyssal plain, cradled Antipode Station, and whose eastern slope was now the scene of frantic activity as automated systems responded to the keyed-in command. Galena did not need her displays to visualize what was happening all along the undersea mountainside Ortelac would be climbing in just seven minutes, thirty-two seconds. In her mind's eye, she could see the superconducting toroids of the braking train rearing up out of their cryogenic armatures and locking into place. Now a strand of interlaced rings adorned Nadezhda's shoulder, descending in a gentle curve from her mile-high crown to her foot. Nor did the annular chain end at the seafloor. From there it entered the shaft, a borehole twice as deep as the mountain was high. A thousand supercooled, metal-jacketed doughnuts, widely spaced at first, but bunched closer and closer together as they neared the summit, were now aligning precisely along the final five kilometers of Vortelach's upward track. Timing was critical. For safety's sake, the superconducting toroids had to be cooled well below the near-zero ambient temperature. Before long, seawater would begin to freeze on the now-exposed rings. The accreting ice could do damage. Worse, as it expanded, it could warp individual braking rings out of alignment. The solution was to limit the exposure of the active elements as much as possible, limit it to the final seven minutes before capture. But that tight a time margin could create problems of its own. Galena's display flashed red. A twenty-toroid section in the middle of the braking train was not responding to the reconfiguration command. The assembly as a whole was a hundred percent over-engineered. It could still perform its function if every other one of its component electromagnets were to fail, but it could not handle a continuous hundred-meter gap in the chain. Six minutes till the onset of the deceleration run, but only four before she must initiate a scram, or the links in the chain would not have time to withdraw out of Vortelac's way. They would be destroyed, and to no purpose. She poised a trembling finger above the abort key, hoping against hope that the holdout units would join the rest of their own accord before time ran out. What is it, Galina Mikhailovna? Grishin's voice startled her. She had forgotten he was standing there behind her. Are we still go? We must make capture on this pass. Please, Arkady Grigorievich, there is no time to discuss this right now. I must think. Under other circumstances, she would have been shocked to hear anyone, much less herself, address the head of Grecian Enterprises International in such peremptory tones. As it was, she scarcely paid heed to what she had said, or to his reaction. Her mind was racing frantically, like a squirrel in a cage, must focus, focus. Suddenly, for no apparent reason, she found herself thinking back to the banquet the previous evening, back to something John had said there, some joke. What was it? Ah, yes, his so-called first, or, or was it second, law of data processing. When in doubt, reboot. Nothing to lose. Try it. She keyed in the reset command and hit send. Barely time enough left for this to work, if it worked. It would take a full minute to retract all the units back into their sockets, 
another to step through the restart procedure, yet another to raise the toroids back into braking position again. Three minutes cycle time in all. Three minutes before she would know if the recalcitrant links in her chain would move into alignment with the rest. Please, please, let it work. Silence stole over the lab. All eyes locked on the countdown displays, watching the seconds tick down to the scram point. The three-minute mark approached. Passed. Nothing. Still nothing. Green! I read green! One of the techs, Voshanova, screamed it out from down the row of workstations. Galina checked her own display. Sure enough, the entire five-kilometer track was now showing as an almost continuous string of little green dots from bottom to top. The last laggard units went from red to green even as she watched. They all winked merrily at her, like a strand of lights on a yolichka, a Christmas tree. She would sag with relief, but there was no time, no time. Two minutes, thirty-two seconds remaining till Armageddon. Powering up frontline toroids. Her voice cracked as she spoke the words. She entered the keystrokes, hit return. They were committed now. Sixteen hundred fathoms below, power began to course from Antipode's main nuclear reactor down the braking train. At the bottom of the shaft, the first ten decelerators came to life. But only the first ten. The reactor's output was insufficient to drive all the toroids in the braking train and still have power enough for what else must be done. No matter, this had been planned for. Confirming frontline toroids at full field strength. One minute eight to go on the clock, Galina announced finally. She was surprised at how calm her voice sounded, now that there was no turning back. Engaging deceleration sequence in five, four, three... Two, she entered one last command. Mark, 2246 hours. The cool, androgynous tones of a synthesized voice picked up where Galena left off. Armageddon, phase one. Deceleration sequence, engaged. The mission computer had now assumed control over all aspects of the final phase, status reporting included. 10.46 p.m. 60 seconds to go. Bordelac was still 20 kilometers out, closing at 3,200 kilometers per hour, but slowing, slowing, as the vertical component of its velocity vector dwindled to zero with the approach of apogee. Enough time for a last check of the readouts. At t-40 seconds, Antipode's gravimetric instrumentation was just beginning to pick up Vortilac's signature propagating through the mantle beneath the seafloor. Now the squids, the superconducting quantum interference devices, were reading its magnetic profile as well. The geophones detected the first faint subterranean rumblings of the vampire's approach. The final seconds ticked down. Galina glanced again at the abort button, but that option was no longer available to her. Humans were now out of the loop, their biochemical reaction times orders of magnitude too slow to even observe, much less direct what would happen next. The antipode techs could only sit on the sidelines as their automated factotums decided the fate of the Earth. Galena watched as the countdown went to T-7, T-6, T-5, all the years of preparation, all the effort, the sacrifice, now balanced on the fulcrum of this single instant. No time left for second thoughts now. 
No time for might-have-beens. T minus three. T minus two. Time, perhaps, only for a prayer. A simple prayer, remembered from long-ago summers spent with her grandmother. Gospudi pomili. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy upon us. T minus zero. Bordelach encountered the first toroid in the braking train. Things began to happen. Fast. Everywhere else in the known universe, magnetic poles come in inseparable north and south pairs. Can't have one without the other. But Bordelach was a magnetic monopole. In effect, just one big south pole, with no north to offset it. And the operative term here, from the standpoint of field strength, was big. The superconducting rings were oriented so that their own magnetic south poles faced downward in the direction of Vortilac's approach. Like-charged poles repel one another. As Vortilac entered the first ring, its radial field plowed into the one threaded round and through the toroid. For a few milliseconds, the ring resisted the hole's forward momentum, and though the outcome of the struggle was never in doubt, neither did Vortilac escape entirely unscathed. It was slowed, if only by a minuscule amount. It was also deflected by an equally minuscule amount, just enough to aim it dead center toward the next decelerator in the chain. The toroid itself did not fare anywhere near so well. If time had permitted, the irresistible force of Vortilac's passage would have smashed it flatter than a tin can in a roller press. Time did not permit. There were bigger, faster effects afoot than mere mechanical stress and shear. Move a magnet across a conductor, and you get electricity. As Vortilac traversed the first toroid, electromagnetic induction set a current to flowing in the unit's superconductive alloy. Like all the rest of the phenomena associated with Vortilac, it was a very large current. The toroid could not contain the sudden burst of energy. It flared and died, exploded like an apple struck by a bullet. Exactly as intended. Unless the magnetic field collapsed the instant Vortilac entered the ring, the micro-hole would be re-accelerated out the other side, like a pip squeezed from an orange. That was emphatically not part of the plan, so the breaking chain elements had all been deliberately engineered to self-destruct like this, after performing one last service. The front-line ring survived just long enough to pump its induced electric current into the connecting cables, and from there to its as-yet-unpowered siblings up the line. Vortilac's velocity, blindingly fast in human terms, was as nothing to the light-speed jolt of power now flowing up the braking train. A second toroid contributed its delta-v of deceleration, was overmastered by the rush of power, and, like its predecessor, passed along this gift of energy with its dying gasp. Then another, and another. T plus one. Vortilac's own motion was now the only thing powering the braking train, and that with megawatts to spare, courtesy of Galina's electromagnetic jujitsu. Galina could only watch as her little progeny sacrificed themselves, overloading and expiring one by one, but not before their job was done, not before they had each exerted their tiny drag on the hurtling black hole. T plus six seconds, T plus seven, four and a half of the braking train's five kilometers now lay behind Vortilac, in ruins. In the vampire's wake, 
twisted wreckage was strewn across Nadezhda's eastern slope like the aftermath of one of Marshal Zhukov's epic World War II tank battles. Three years' toil expended in the blink of an eye. If this did not work, could they ever find the strength, the resolve to begin again? But it was working. Bordelak's centrifugal force was decreasing as it slowed further and further, now each successive link in the deceleration chain must exert an increasing percentage of its force upward. Slower, slower. The mission computer spoke the words Galina had been waiting to hear. Phase one, deceleration sequence, complete. Initiating Armageddon, phase two, positional stabilization. T plus ten, moving at a crawl. Its path virtually horizontal now, Bordelak entered the containment chamber at the heart of Antipode Station. Alarm shrieked as gravitometers and squids registered its incursion, tracked it microsecond by microsecond as it approached the center. The capture chamber's arrays of superconducting electromagnets were fully charged and waiting. Compared with the tokamaks Galena had worked on most of her professional life, Antipode was simplicity itself. No need to provide for plasma containment. There would be no plasma to contain, only Vortilac. No need to pinch the magnetic field to induce a thermonuclear reaction. This was not a reactor, but a cage. An invisible cage, woven of lines of magnetic force. A cage whose intangible bars now slid shut. As Vortilac crossed the center of the capture chamber, the giant electromagnets in its ceiling and floor slammed all their available energy into the primordial black hole. The repulsor array pushed against its gargantuan weight from below. The tractor hemisphere pulled on it from above. Secondary installations on the walls fore and aft countered the hole's residual forward momentum. Vortilac bobbled on the lip of the field like a basketball in a rim shot, and ground to a halt. Now the geophones took center stage, registering a truly awesome seismic shear as Mount Nadezhda shifted and settled under the burden of Vortilak's weight. Seismometers around the world would jump before the hour was up. The American anti-submarine hydrophone network would register the shock within minutes. The Antipode project, wrapped in a cloak of silence all these years, would become an open secret in the next few hours. But hours were not important now. It was the next few seconds that counted. If Mount Nadezhda should buckle under the strain. But the seamount was holding. Holding. Still holding. The tremors dying down. Yes. The generated voice of Rusalka's main computer announced, Phase 2. Positional stabilization. Complete. The genie was trapped in Galena's magnetic bottle. But for how long? The prodigious energies needed to bear a five and a half billion metric ton load were generated by enormous superconducting toroids. These were permanent magnets, but they would stay permanent only so long as they continued to superconduct, and their ability to do so was under constant threat from the disruptive potential of the electromagnetic flux coursing through them. To survive as superconductors, antipodes' levitation arrays had to be kept far, far colder 
than the ice-water transition temperatures of the little toy boats at last night's banquet. The colder the better, for safety's sake, and Galena had chosen to chill the arrays to within seven degrees of absolute zero. But maintaining such a deep freeze against the massive heat leak of the containment operation ate power at an ungodly rate. The real-time output of Antipode's nuclear reactor couldn't satisfy the demand alone, and in 45 seconds, plus or minus five, the stored power would be exhausted. The superconductors would begin to heat up. Their magnetic levitation fields would fail. Unsupported, Bordelac would fall. But not into its previous orbit. If it broke free again, after having been halted in its path, it would fall nearly straight down, grazing the very center of the Earth. That must not happen. The same highly conductive nickel-iron core that gave rise to Earth's magnetic field would resist Vortilac's passage, inducing orbital aberrations. The new trajectory would differ radically from the one they had spent years studying and shaping. They might not be able to find the vampire again, and in the meantime, they would have accelerated the timetable for the doom they had hoped to avert. No, they could not let go of this tiger they had by the tail. There would be no second chance. The mission computer spoke again, a note of what sounded like exhilaration in its synthesized tones. Thirty seconds to Armageddon Phase 3. Power stabilization. Initiating fuel feed. At six equidistant points around the circumference of the containment chamber, precision-machined nozzles dilated minutely. Hair-thin, pressurized jets of de-aerated, distilled water rushed in and converged on the captive object. Or tried to. Like all submicroscopic black holes, Vordelac was hot. Bekenstein-hawking radiation heated it into the billions of degrees. But that was at its microscopically small surface. Further out, say, a meter or so, the temperature dropped to a comfortable few thousand degrees Celsius, not much hotter than your average blast furnace. Still hot enough, though, to vaporize the inrushing water and blast the superheated plasma back out again toward the walls of its cage, toward the ring of superconducting MHD generators standing ready to turn Vortilac's heat energy into electricity via electromagnetic induction. A brute force, inefficient approach, and so what? The thermal energy was free, and virtually inexhaustible, courtesy of Vortilac. The superconducting magnets would, to all intents and purposes, last forever. There were no moving parts to wear out, and the power output was phenomenal. Plug that output back into Antipode's main cryostats, and voila, enough constant, real-time energy to maintain superconducting containment temperature indefinitely. Vortilac would become its own jailer, till the end of time, if need be. That was the theory, anyway. Galena was now sweating through the reality, only fifteen seconds now to power stabilization. She monitored the rising slope of the MHD output as it raced against the depletion of the stored reserves, adjusted the fuel feed to compensate for unanticipated deviations from modeled ionization rates, glanced at the countdown, ten seconds until Vortilac would have to pull its own weight, balancing, balancing, there, 
Galena monitored power flow for a few more seconds before daring to believe. Bordelac was producing power to spare, enough to maintain its magnetic bottle indefinitely, and soon now, as soon as the undersea conduits could be laid, free, clean power to help light the world's cities as well. Until then, the radiators crowning Nadezhda summit would vent the overflow into the inexhaustible heatsink of the North Atlantic, a bonanza for the energy-starved ecology of the Newfoundland Basin and its extremophile life forms. Phase 3, power stabilization complete, the mission computer announced. Galina was shaking with reaction. All the desperate gambles of the past hours and minutes and years had paid off. Now the final phase was complete. Her face felt wet. She realized she was crying, whispering, Spasiba, Spasiba, thank you, thank you, over and over again like a prayer. In Russian, of course, it is a prayer, a contraction of Spasi Bog, may God save you. She rose from her chair, turned, and still sobbing, hugged a surprised Arkady Grigorievich. Spasibo, she told him. A cheer went up from the lab crew. They too were rising from their stations, slapping each other's backs, embracing, weeping openly, the men as well as the women. Galina had always admired the way Russian men were unafraid to express their deepest emotions. Except for that cold fish, Kamarov. Out of the corner of her eye, Galina could see him still sitting in front of his display, like a toad carved from stone, oblivious to the euphoria all around him, still monitoring the configurations of the containment field, or so it appeared from here, still tapping commands into his keyboard. Why? The mission computer's synthetic voice began speaking again. Commencing Armageddon Phase 4. Acceleration. If there was more to the announcement, Galina didn't hear it. She released Grecian, took a step back. Acceleration? Acceleration of what? What's going on here, Arkady Grigorievich? There is no phase four. Receiving no reply, she turned back to her console. There, before her eyes, the field geometries were shifting. The warping of the containment field was subtle. Anyone else might have missed it entirely. But Galina had lived, eaten, slept, dreamed these configurations for the past five years. She knew that slight strengthening at the 90-degree lateral was wrong. She dropped into her chair again, summoned the gravimetric readouts to her display. No doubt about it, Vortilak was wobbling, as if it were being bombarded somehow by some invisible force. The containment arrays were compensating, as they were designed to do producing the distortion that had caught Galena's eye. The resulting field disposition remained metastable, but Vortilac's spin, already within 3% of the speed of light, was increasing. She could see the reason now. The squids were detecting eight individual streams of heavy ions, entering the chamber from emitters not on any of the blueprints she had seen. Moving at relativistic speeds, the atomic nuclei were skimming the black hole's submicroscopic ergosphere with the precision of a particle accelerator and the momentum of a pile driver. Each impact was minuscule compared with Vortilac's titanic mass, but cumulatively. Could that be why the automated announcement had called the mysterious fourth phase acceleration? Where could the beams be coming from? 
She called up the site plans on her display, reviewed the familiar 3D cutaways for the thousandth time. Containment sphere, control room with its observation gallery for visiting dignitaries, antechamber and bathyscape docking facility, nothing out of the ordinary there. More keystrokes brought up the infrastructure schematics, life support machinery, heat pipes, transformer bay, cryostats and power converters, on and on. She paused, then paged back to the schematic of the transformer bay. The vast space occupied most of one level. The display showed it sitting empty right now. No need to install the equipment before the cable ships had laid the deep-water conduits that would connect Antipode to the global power grid. But was it truly empty? There was room enough in there to accommodate what her instrumentation was detecting, eight radially-mounted linear accelerators. As this realization dawned, Galena glimpsed a flicker of movement in the upper right-hand corner of her display. She tore her gaze from the station schematics and saw that a small red rectangle had appeared there unbidden. Yellow digits were inscribed in it, ticking off the seconds toward an undefined event still some fifty-three and a half hours in the future. A countdown window. She jerked at the touch of Arkady Grigorievich's hand on her shoulder. He was saying something. Kalina Mikhailovna, Kalia, if I may, you are to be congratulated on your success this day. He took her by the arm, urged her up. Let us go to my office. It is time we had a talk. As Grecian guided her toward the exit, Galina glanced back at her now silent co-workers by their ranked workstations. With the sole exception of Kamarov, who looked almost exultant, the faces of her colleagues mirrored her own puzzlement. Each of their displays now showed an identical red rectangle, all of them counting down in unison. Fifty-three, thirty-six, thirteen, twelve, eleven. You've been listening to Singularity by Bill DeSmet.